the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our next question, number 135. Will faith alone save us? Faith alone will not save us without good works. We must also have hope and charity. Well, without good works, that's obvious. A person could believe very perfectly and know all that God said. But if he was wanting in charity or didn't put what he believed into practice, it wouldn't, wouldn't do him much good. Our Lord tells us, it's not those who say, Lord, Lord, who will get to heaven, but those who do the, the will of, of God. So we have to have good works. As St. James tells us, the devils believe and tremble. Faith alone is not enough. We have to try to lead good lives as well. Well, that's obvious. Next, what is hope? Hope is a supernatural gift of God by which we firmly trust that God will give us eternal life and all means necessary to obtain it if we do what he requires of us. Now this is very important. There was a good priest, Father Considine, and I read something he wrote about, he said, if he'd been asked to form some estimate of the degree of holiness to which God was calling an individual, he'd base his judgment on the quality of that person's hope. That's to say, if we have great confidence in God and have that relationship to God that a little child has to its father or mother, that's how we should look at God. The basis of our whole religion is that God's good and that he loves us. And he loves us not because we are good or because we deserve his love. He loves us because he's good. And just as little children know that their parents will always be there to look after them and help them. So we know that God's on our side and that he'll most certainly provide us with all that we need to get to heaven. If you were going across country on a dark night and you've never been in that part of the country before and your guide was taking you to a place you've never been to before and if you knew that your guide loved you and was infinitely powerful well you trust your guide you keep close to him and that's how we are in this life really we, we know that God loves us I mean there's the crucifix to prove it and we know that he wants to bring us to heaven. And we know that if only we try to keep close to him, he most certainly will bring us to heaven and give us all that we need. We can never complain that our Heavenly Father hasn't provided us with what we need to come to our eternal home in heaven. How could he? How could he deprive us of something we really need? If a person has ill health, Maybe God sees that that is what a person needs to get them to heaven. Really, the very first thing about religion is to realize that God's good. And once we realize that he's good and realize that he loves us, then obviously we have this virtue of hope. The next question is, why must we hope in God? We must hope in God because he's infinitely good infinitely powerful and faithful to his promises. 
So it's really important to to trust God and not to think that we have to look after ourselves all the time. Sure, we have to look after ourselves. But nevertheless, in what concerns our salvation, God loves us more than we love ourselves. And if we think that we can do ourselves a kindness by disobeying God, we're greatly mistaken. That person going across unknown country at night to an unknown destination. It's crazy of him to desert his guide who's taking him by a difficult path uphill. He's there not just to enjoy himself but to get to his destination and he can do that only by keeping to his guide and so with us and getting to heaven. So long as we really try to keep close to God then, well, we certainly get to heaven and also we enjoy this life. A little child who's lost on the streets Sure, there's lots of freedom there. But, is that child happy? Last night we had a Chinaman come to this place and uh, I asked him what religion he was and he said he's a free thinker. I didn't quite know what to say because if he says he's a free thinker, I suppose he implies I'm all shackled and uh, I'm not free. So I didn't know what to say really but thinking it over afterwards, I thought to myself, well, a little child who's lost, that child's free, but is he happy? Or a fella who hasn't yet found any, any real girl he loves, he's free, yeah. But if he suddenly finds the most marvellous girl in the world and completely loses his heart to her and they get engaged, he's not free. But is he any of the sadder for it? Oh no, he's found what he wants. We'll go on to the next one. Can we do any good work of ourselves towards our salvation? We can do no good work of ourselves towards our salvation. We need the help of God's grace, for it's a fact. We can't move one inch to heaven without God's help. The fact that we exist is his gift. And our ability to move towards heaven is all his gift. And that would make us feel really comfortable like a little child in his mother's arms. What is grace? Well, that word grace, it comes from a word uh, meaning gift. The first Christians, they had to find some word to describe what they got when they were baptized, and so they called it just the gift. And in Latin that became gratia. And so, grace means any gift of God that he gives us to help us towards heaven. There's the life of grace, that's what we get when we're baptized, sometimes called sanctifying grace. And then every little help that God gives us to help us towards heaven, a good thought that comes into our heart, or a useful book, or a helpful friend. These things are all graces that God gives us. The Catechism answer, Grace is a supernatural gift of God, freely bestowed upon us for our sanctification and salvation. And how must we obtain God's grace? We must obtain God's grace chiefly by prayer and the Holy Sacraments. Well, that gets us on to the matter of prayer. And I'll say something about prayer. Prayer, it's talking with God who loves us. Talking with a person who knows us better than anybody else knows us and loves us more than anybody else ever could love us. 
That's what prayer is. And the most important thing about prayer is what you might call the remote preparation. That's to say, to try to live a life that is is pleasing to God. I remember I, I was in a train with a chap once and we got talking and I asked him if he went to church and he said he was a Jew. So I asked him if he went to a synagogue and he said he didn't. So I asked him if he prayed and he said he didn't. So I said, well, you can't live like that. How can you be happy if you don't pray? You can't live right if you're not praying. And he said, well, look, it's like this. If I pray, I've got to be honest in business. If I'm honest in business, I don't make a living. So I don't pray. Again, I was, I was really sorry, I didn't quite know what to say. But he was quite right that if you pray, it's bound to have an effect on your life. And well, it's like in ordinary human relationships. Supposing a man really loves his wife and he's really doing all he can for her. He doesn't find her company irksome. He's not embarrassed about wondering what to say next. If there's nothing to say, they're both quite happy because they love each other and they understand each other and they trust each other. But if a man's deceiving his wife, if he's being unfaithful to his wife, then he could find it a bit difficult. He could have to start thinking what he's going to have to say. He might find it difficult to look her in the eyes. Well, with us and God, he knows that we are sinners and the fact that uh, we've sinned does not stop us being open to God. Well, on the contrary, really. If a person knows that they're very weak and they've sinned a great deal, and they're well aware that they've offended God, but now they really want to turn to Him and get His help to lead a good life, then they find our Lord really most loving and welcoming. If we're determined to go on sinning, then, of course, how can we pray? Very difficult. It should all be a bit artificial, like a man who's always committing adultery, would find conversation with his wife a bit artificial. But if my heart is such that from now on I really want to do all that God wants, then, then prayer shouldn't come hard. This remote preparation is the most important thing in prayer, to have the resolve that anyhow from now on I'm going to try to please God and not refuse Him anything that, that he asks. There are three phases, three sort of parts in prayer, if you like. Reading, reflection, and prayer itself. Reading, when you read something about God. Reflection, when you think it over. And then prayer, when you talk to God direct. The Bible, obviously, is the best reading there is. It's inspired. And to read the Gospels, a great help. You read about God there, what he's done, how he's loved you. Or the Psalms, they're the best part of the Old Testament. You read there such wonderful expressions of confidence in God's mercy. It's a great help reading scripture. And you shouldn't think you've got to understand it all. Who understands scripture? If you go to a spring to drink... You don't expect to drink the spring dry. You drink as much as you want, 
and then it goes on running. So with Scripture, with the Bible. We go to it, and there's inexhaustible nourishment there. Read what you want, get what you want out of it, and that's enough. What we should seek to draw from the Bible is the realization of how good God is, how much he loves us, how he wants us to be holy. But to think that you've got to read the Bible to understand the whole thing, ah, that's not what the Bible's given us for. So I'd recommend you to try to do some spiritual reading. After the Bible, The Imitation of Christ, it's a wonderful book. Or Saints' Lives, or Lives of Our Lord. There's lots of good books. So, what is prayer in the Catechism? Prayer is the raising up of the mind and heart to God. How do we raise up our mind and heart to God? We raise up our mind and heart to God by thinking of God, by adoring, praising and thanking Him, and by begging of Him all blessings for soul and body. You see, you read the Bible, say, and then reflect on it. You think about it. You sort of mull it over or apply it to yourself. And then you turn to God direct to adore Him or to thank Him or to ask Him for what you need. Do those pray well who at their prayers think neither of God nor of what they say? Those who at their prayers think neither of God nor of what they say do not pray well, but they offend God if their distractions are willful. But mind you, if our distractions aren't willful, uh, they don't offend God. I mean, if you're talking to the Queen and there's a fly buzzing round your face and you're, you know, you're rather annoyed that fly's buzzing round you and you try to brush it away, she's not annoyed with you because the fly is troubling you. And when God sees us troubled by distractions, he doesn't stop in loving us. And we mustn't think that in order to please God, we have to pray well. If a father's got a little child who's just learning how to talk, and the child can only say one thing, da, meaning daddy, the father's thrilled to get on to everyone his child can talk. And yet, it's only the loving ear of a father which could recognize that as human speech. And so with God and us, God loves us so much that if we just turn to him and try to tell him that we want to love him God really likes that it's it's basic really isn't it when you're talking to somebody to realize who you're talking to and in prayer we're talking to our loving father and he loves us so much that all the love of the good fathers and mothers in the world all put together it would be nothing compared to the love that God has for each of us And so it's easy to please God, if you like. It's easy. If you just turn to him and want to try to pray, he's pleased. And if you think that you can't find God, then he's sort of lost. There's a saying of Pascal, which is helpful here. He makes God say to the poor sinner who is trying to find him, God says to him, You wouldn't be looking for me if you had not already found me. And so if a person thinks they can't find God and God's hidden, ah, the very fact they're looking for him means that they've found him. But God is sort of hiding himself and giving you nourishment all the time. So you just have to persevere in prayer and certainly at night you should always kneel down to try to say some prayer to God. 
even if it's nothing more than, dear God, teach me to love you. We're gone with our catechism. Which is the best of all prayers? The best of all prayers is the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer. Who made the Lord's Prayer? Jesus Christ himself made the Lord's Prayer. Say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. We don't go on with that bit, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory for ever and ever. Amen. Because that, well, our Lord didn't actually give it to us. Why has it been put at the end of the Our Father? Well, maybe it was that people just didn't like ending a prayer with the word evil. I suppose there's no harm in saying it, but in point of fact, when our Lord gave the apostles this prayer, he ended up by saying, but deliver us from evil. In the Lord's Prayer, who's called our Father? In the Lord's Prayer, God is called our Father. Why is God called our Father? God is called our Father because he's the father of all Christians, whom he has made his children by holy baptism. Is God also the father of all mankind? God is also the father of all mankind, because he made them all and loves and preserves them all. Why do we say our father and not my father? Well, I suppose basically we say our father, because that's what Jesus told us to say. I mean, we didn't make it up. The Catechism says, We say our father and not my father, because, being all brethren, we are to pray not for ourselves only, but also for all others. And certainly for peace in the world, unless we realize that uh, we all of us just have the one Father, and that so far as God's concerned, we're all his children. You, you can't come to peace unless you realize that, and you can't any sort of racialism in it, anything like that. It can't be dealt with except at a supernatural level, by realizing that there's one God who loves us all. When we say, Hallowed be thy name, what do we pray for? When we say, Hallowed be thy name, we pray that God may be known, loved, and served by all his creatures. Uh, Hallowed means holy, and All Saints Day, uh, it's All Hallows. It's the old English name for saint, or to make holy. And that bit on earth as it is in heaven. That can be tagged on to all these first three petitions. So, hallowed be thy name on earth as it is in heaven. What we want is that justice in heaven. Everybody knows that God is holy. And they hear the angels singing, holy, holy, holy. So what we're praying for is that in this world too, all men may realize that God is holy and unite in praising his holy name. When we say, Thy kingdom come, what do we pray for? When we say, Thy kingdom come, we pray that God may come and reign in the hearts of all by His grace in this world and bring us all hereafter to His heavenly kingdom. And that's a great prayer, Thy kingdom come, when we want the reign of Jesus Christ to be established in the hearts of all, but first of all in our own heart. And we say, Thy kingdom come, but maybe there's a great chunk of my own heart that I like to keep for myself. The first thing we must do is to try to let Christ reign in our own hearts. That's the throne that he covets.
When we say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what do we pray for? When we say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray that God may enable us, by his grace, to do his will in all things, as the blessed do in heaven. Well, that prayer, Thy will be done, very comforting, because God is in charge, and not a leaf stirs anywhere on any tree in the world, but with God's permission. And his will rules all things. It's only we human beings who can resist his will. It's as though there's a marvellous sort of harmony in all creation, with perfect orchestration everywhere, except my heart, and I can put a ghastly discord into the whole thing by resisting God's holy will. It's only we human beings who can resist God's will. So when we say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray that we may always do God's holy will. And when he arranges something, like it raining when I wanted a fine day, we can realize this is God's will too, and just adore him and accept him. Or if there's sickness, well, God permits that too. God's very pleased when we, his children, don't grumble at everything he does. Because everything he does is done out of love. Just as the sun can only give off heat and, and light, it can't give off cold or darkness. So God can only act out of love. And he's pleased when we recognize this and accept his holy will. When we say, give us this day our daily bread, what do we pray for? When we say, give us this day our daily bread, we pray that God may give us daily all that is necessary for soul and body. He wants us to pray, not just for spiritual things, but he's also interested in our daily needs. He doesn't tell us to pray for tomorrow's bread, mind you, but just for today's. He likes us to live in a state of dependence on him. But he's not displeased. Some people think that God wants us only to pray that we may be holy or something. Well, we ought to pray for that, but God also wants us to pray for, well, for a fine day, say. But then to accept God's will if he sometimes has to say no. When we say, forgive us our trespasses, we forgive those who trespass against us, what do we pray for? When we say, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, we pray that God may forgive us our sins as we forgive others the injuries they do to us. Now this is most important. When our Lord had given the apostles this prayer, he reckoned that it more or less explained itself. But there was one point he came back on just in case they hadn't got it. This particular point. He said, if you don't forgive your brother from your heart, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. And so it's absolutely necessary for our salvation that we should forgive everybody, whatever they do to us. And as you get older, it's a terrible thing, but as we get older, our hearts can sort of get harder somehow and resentful. We've got to be very careful. If you see a little ash tree growing in the garden, two inches high, well, you pull it up, if you don't want it, I mean. And if it's six inches high, you pull it up. 
If you don't see it till it's a yard high, well, you couldn't put it up. You'd have to cut it. And these little thoughts of resentment and ill will against people, if we deal with them at once, perhaps we can get them out of our hearts. But if we go on thinking of them, they can get just too big. So, it's not a bad thing in your prayers just to check over and see if there's anybody who has injured you whom you don't forgive. And if you find somebody like that, then you must force yourself to pray for them. Now, we can't control our feelings. You may not be able to eradicate a feeling of hatred or feeling of ill will. I mean, some wounds, like the wound of, of, of bereavement, some wounds never seem to heal in this life at all. But nevertheless, it's not our feelings that that a, a sin. Sin lies in the will. And so if you find yourself feeling really bad about somebody, it's most important that you should force yourself to say a prayer for them, for their salvation. And if you can do that, at least it shows that you don't really hate them. It's just that you find it very difficult to forget this injury that, that they've done. And so people say, well, I'll forgive, but I can't forget. Well, God doesn't ask us to forget. But he does ask us to forgive. And we must make sure that we somehow try to have that forgiveness towards others that we hope God's going to have towards us. Because we've all sinned, and we all need God's forgiveness. When we say, lead us not into temptation, what do we pray for? When we say, lead us not into temptation, we pray that God may give us grace not to yield to temptation. When we say, deliver us from evil, what do we pray for? When we say, deliver us from evil, we pray that God may free us from all evil, both of soul and body. Well, that's a great prayer, the Lord's Prayer. And if you don't know how to pray, maybe just to take that prayer and say it slowly, you know, as slowly as you like, just a bit at a time, like a child sucking its last sweet. It wouldn't rush it. Should we ask the angels and saints to pray for us? We should ask the angels and saints to pray for us because they are our friends and brethren and because their prayers have great power with God. Well, I think I said earlier that I wouldn't bother too much about this if you find it difficult. The main thing is to love God, to love Christ our Lord. But, when we get to heaven, there will be loads of other people there too. And they love us, and they're like our older brothers and sisters. And there's no harm, even in this life, of getting friendly with them, even though you haven't seen them yet. How can we show that the angels and saints know what passes on earth? We can show that the angels and saints know what passes on earth from the words of Christ, there shall be joy before the angels of God upon one sinner doing penance. If we turn to the angels and saints in heaven, they can't be, be deaf to our prayers, and incidentally, uh, it's Catholic belief that each of us has a guardian angel, that God gives us each an angel to look after us during this life. And so you might just as well sometimes turn to your angel to ask his help. Actually, I've only done that once consciously, so I think he's helped me many times. I was going into a big library in the seminary, and I wanted one book, and I hadn't a clue where to look for it. And I was just sort of looking at this room and thinking, where on earth would this book be filed? And I thought to myself, well, my guardian angel knows where it is. 
I knew that. I just went straight across the other side of the room and put my hand up on the shelf and got it down. I was quite staggered. But I've had a few sort of escapes from death, and I suppose my guardian angel was helping me there. We're now getting on to the subject of our blessed lady, and this, this can give great difficulty to people, and maybe I ought to say something about it first. If you do have great sort of repugnance about uh, the devotion which the Catholic Church shows to Our Lady, maybe skip this tape if you like. It, it, it's not essential. Uh, to have the faith means we believe in God, in the Incarnation, in the fact that our Lord died for our sins, and that he left the Church to carry on his work, and this is, this is the Catholic Church. And if you believe that, well, you have the faith. And difficulties about uh, various parts of what we believe, I wouldn't bother too much about them, because these things come gradually. For my own part, I know, I was a Catholic for many years before I finally felt sort of comfortable. Certainly it was not until after I was ordained a priest that I lost my final difficulties regarding Our Lady. So... If you find difficulty, I, I, I wouldn't bother. But in, in your prayers, you might ask God to give you that love for his mother that he wants you to have. You, you can't go wrong there. But I'll say one or two things first about it, about our devotion to Our Lady. Suppose you were an artist, and you earned your living by painting pictures and selling them. And suppose there was one picture which you painted which you knew was your masterpiece, and you really loved this picture, and you thought whatever else you'd sell, you, you'd never sell this picture, you'd rather starve than sell this picture. You loved it so much. And suppose you had someone coming to look round your pictures, and there's this beloved picture of yours among them, and if he came along and looked at your pictures and, and admired them, and came for this picture, and then stopped dead still, and just went on looking at it, and then said, This is perfect. I don't know how you did it. And if you went on speaking in praise of your picture, you wouldn't be nettled, you wouldn't be annoyed, you'd be quite happy. You wouldn't mind how long he went on telling you what a wonderful picture you painted. Because you might think, well, perhaps he sees things in it that, that I never saw. On the other hand, if he came to your masterpiece, and just sort of nodded and said, very nice, and walked on. You'd be charitable, but you think to yourself, he doesn't know much about pictures. Now, our blessed lady is God's masterpiece. He dwelt in her womb for nine months. He chose her to be his mother. He prepared her soul with that incredible humility that a creature must have to be able to be the mother of God. He beautified her soul with, with so many virtues. And there she is. And if we don't admire her, well, God's, God's good. But if we do admire her, well, he's pleased. How can we think we're displeasing God by telling him how perfectly he's made his mother? That's one side of it, that... Uh, Mary is God's masterpiece, 
And if we are filled with joy at the sight of her, this does not displease her creator and maker. Then another side of it is this. We want to make our hearts as much like the heart of Jesus as we can. If you like, that's our main task in this life, to try to model our hearts after the, after the heart of Jesus. Now, if you look into the heart of Jesus, what do you see there? You see a tender love for his mother. He only had one human parent. He loved his mother. He was a perfect son. And if we look into our own heart and find no love there for Mary, well, our hearts, anyhow, they're not very much like the heart of our Lord. But if we try to love her, that will bring us a bit closer to his heart. And so, to ask God to make your heart more like the heart of Jesus, you can't go wrong there. But then again, there's, a, there's a, another reason, and it's this, that our baptism makes us one with Jesus. It places us in Jesus. And at the moment of our baptism, the Holy Trinity come to live in us, we start living this life of identification with Jesus. We have become sharers of the divine nature, as St. Peter puts it. And at that moment, too, Mary becomes our mother. Insofar as we are Christians, Mary must be our mother. And therefore, we ought to try to love her. It used to puzzle me how it could be that non-Catholic people I knew who were such devout Christians, such great lovers of God, I thought, how is it that they have this feeling about Our Lady of repugnance even, or anyhow they don't know her? I thought, how is it possible for a child not to know his mother? And then I thought to myself, well, suppose a child were taken away from its mother on the day of its birth and fostered out, and then twenty years later were introduced to this lady and, say, and someone said, now this is actually, this is your mother. Well, there'd be all sorts of person would say, oh, very interesting. But there wouldn't be any spontaneous movement of love towards her. This would take time. And so with Our Lady, we mustn't be surprised that people who are great lovers of Jesus and great lovers of the Holy Trinity have no love for Mary. If they could get to know her and realize who she is, then, please God, they come to have a love for her. But meanwhile, I wouldn't bother about it. But just in your prayers, perhaps, ask God to give you such love for Our Lady as He would like you to have. So we've gone with the Catechism questions now. What's the chief prayer to the Blessed Virgin which the Church uses? The chief prayer to the Blessed Virgin which the Church uses is the Hail Mary. Say the Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Who made the first part of the Hail Mary? The angel Gabriel and Saint Elizabeth, inspired by the Holy Spirit, made the first part of the Hail Mary. You remember when the angel came in and greeted Our Lady, he said to her, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. 
that's how the Archangel Gabriel greeted our Blessed Lady. And then when our Lady went to see her cousin St. Elizabeth, who was already six months with child, she was the mother of St. John the Baptist, of course, when St. Elizabeth saw our Lady, she greeted her and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So that first half of the Hail Mary does come from Scripture. And it reminds us of the biggest event in the history of this world, the Incarnation, when God himself came to this world in person and became our, our cousin. Who made the second part of the Hail Mary? The Church of God, guided by the Holy Spirit, made the second part of the Hail Mary. Why should we frequently say the Hail Mary? We should frequently say the Hail Mary to put us in mind of the incarnation of the Son of God and to honor our Blessed Lady, the Mother of God. Have we another reason for often saying the Hail Mary? We have another reason for often saying the Hail Mary, to ask our Blessed Lady to pray for us sinners at all times, but especially at the hour of our death. And really, the hour of our death, that's the most important hour of our life. I heard of some story about a headmaster's conference and uh, somebody, uh, some good non-Catholic headmaster, asked this priest, uh, what do you educate your boys for? And he said, we educate them for death. Because that is the crowning moment of our life. Just like a person works through the whole year for an exam. And the exam, that is the great moment. Everything's been leading up to that. And he tries to put everything into it. So we human beings. The great time is the moment of our transition from time to eternity. But in point of fact, when the time comes, we can just be sort of flat out with exhaustion and weariness. And that's why it's a good thing when one's still sort of strong and, and well to ask Our Lady to help us at that moment. And in case I forget to say it again, if ever you're with somebody who's dying, it's very important to help them. That's to say, people can be in a bit of a coma or not able to speak or not able to open their eyes and yet they can still hear, and they can still think, even though they're tired. And you should seize those moments in order to help them to pray. And to kneel down close to their bed, and talk close to their ear, and say, I'm going to pray now. Try to pray with me. And then make up little prayers like, Dear God, I do love you. I thank you for the good things you've given me in my life. Please forgive me for all my sins. Help me to love you better. Little acts of the love of God, sorrow for sin, gratitude, these are things that we should try to say to people who are dying to help draw their thoughts in the direction of God. And a person at that moment, they're so weak, there's no sort of resistance much they can put up. And so what we're saying to them, they'll scarcely be able to resist it, and we can draw them on to pray. 
So it's very important not to allow people to die in a negative sort of way, just sort of fading out. We should try to help them to die in a positive way, looking towards God, loving God, eager for God, grateful for God, sorry for all the times we've offended God. These are the things we should try to help dying people have in their hearts. We go on now with our catechism. Why does the Catholic Church show great devotion to the Blessed Virgin? The Catholic Church shows great devotion to the Blessed Virgin because she is the Immaculate Mother of God. I think we dealt with that word Immaculate before when we were talking about original sin. It means that she never had any sin at all. How is the Blessed Virgin Mother of God? The Blessed Virgin is Mother of God because Jesus Christ, her Son, who was born of her as man, is not only a man, but is also truly God. Well, two days ago, I remember a student, he, he, couldn't, he wouldn't allow that title, Mother of God. He said, she's the mother of Jesus. And I said, but Jesus is God. We couldn't get it across to him. Jesus is God. He's a divine person. It's God himself who entered the womb of the Blessed Virgin and took there to himself a human nature and emerged, still God, still God, God the Son, but now with a divine nature and a human nature. And Mary gave birth to Jesus. A woman doesn't give birth to a nature, she gives birth to a person. And the person she gave birth to is God. And so quite rightly we call her the Mother of God. Is the Blessed Virgin our Mother also? The Blessed Virgin is our Mother also because being the brethren of Jesus, we're the children of Mary. I said something about that already. What do we mean by the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin? By the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin we mean that by the power of God, Mary, at the completion of her life, was taken body and soul into everlasting glory, to reign as Queen of Heaven and Earth. Is the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin an article of faith? The Assumption of the Blessed Virgin is an article of faith because it's been solemnly defined by the infallible authority of the Church. Pope Pius XII defined it, but it's always been believed way back to the beginning. In one of our cathedrals, going back to the 1100s, there's a carving there of Mary being assumed into heaven. And the centuries before that, it was a feast in the Church. And it's just always been taken for granted that Mary's body just never decayed into dust. This has been the tradition of the Church. But for me, one of the arguments, <coughs> one of the arguments that helped me most was this, that Christians have always treasured the relics of their saints. The early Christians, they were sometimes called cinder worshippers because they used to burn Christians when they could get hold of them during the persecutions. And uh, the Christians liked, when somebody had been burnt to death for the faith, they used to like to try and get bits of the bones or something just to honour them and bury them somewhere. And so the pagans mockingly called the Christians cinder worshippers. But the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so when we've died, we treat the body with reverence. It's going to be raised again. And it's a fact that from the beginning of the church, Christians have treated 
the relics, the remains, the bodily remains of the saints with reverence. I may say that as a convert, this is one of the things I found very difficult. Uh, it seems to me a bit exaggerated. Maybe it is with some people. Anyhow, that's how it is. That people have always venerated the remains of the saints. And we have relics of the apostles and their tombs are venerated. And from the beginning there's always been a sort of devotion to relics, little bits of their bones that have been kept and venerated. And no doubt there was some sort of spurious traffic in these relics, but even though there may have been spurious traffic in relics in the early centuries, never has there been any relic of our Blessed Lady. Well, if it hadn't been realized by everyone that our Blessed Lady's body just isn't here at all, certainly somebody would have got the great idea of uh, putting out relics of Our Lady. But it couldn't be done, because everyone knew that body and soul she's in heaven. Anyhow, that's how it is. So, in heaven, besides the humanity of Christ, there's also our Blessed Lady body and soul there too. Now we come on to charity. What is charity? Charity is a supernatural gift of God by which we love God above all things and our neighbor as ourselves for God's sake. When we're baptized, we get given this sharing in God's life. And just as our human life has its faculties of knowing and loving, so this divine life we get, it has its faith, a way of knowing God and knowing the things of God and charity which is loving with God's love. Why must we love God? We must love God because He's infinitely good in Himself and infinitely good to us. How do we show that we love God? We show that we love God by keeping His commandments. For Christ says, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's true that Christianity is not just a lot of hot air and pious feelings. It's a matter of doing things, just like in married life. A man can make all sorts of protestations of love, but if if he never helps with the washing up or whatever it may be that his wife wants him to do, you know, how much love is there? We show the quality of our love by what we do, that's for sure. Everyone knows that. In deeds more than in words. And so we show we love God by trying to do what he tells us to do. And sometimes, of course, that's hard, but that's how we show our love. How many commandments are there? There are ten commandments. Say the ten commandments. I am the Lord thy God, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, and out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. Thou shalt not make to thyself any graven thing, nor the likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, nor of those things that are in the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not adore them, nor serve them. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember that thou keep holy the Sabbath day. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. The division in the Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible, the Ten Commandments, is different. We all know there are Ten Commandments, but they're divided differently, which is a bit confusing. Just like the Psalms, we all know there are 150 Psalms, 
But uh, there's one division in the Hebrew version from which the Protestant Bible is taken and another division in the Greek version from which uh, our Catholic translations were taken. So nowadays, the Revised Standard Version, which is what I use, the Catholic edition, this follows the, uh, the other division of the Psalms. Nevertheless, this division of the Ten Commandments is the way we Catholics divide them up. Who gave the Ten Commandments? God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses in the Old Law, and Christ confirmed them in the New. As, as I explained before when talking about sin, these commandments really explain the law of our nature. And it's interesting to note that the first commandment is that we must love God. And if we don't love God, then there's something sort of wrong in ourselves. They say we are not helping ourselves. It's a basic law of our nature that we have to try to love God. Everything has to obey the law in its nature. If, if you throw a stone upwards, as long as it's going up, well, there's a sort of tension in it. And if it could think, when it stops going up and starts coming down, if it could think, it would think to itself, well, this is what I'm meant to be doing, I'm meant to be going down. Our human heart is meant to go towards God. And unless a person is consciously trying to direct their heart towards God, they're creating within themselves an inner tension which no psychiatrist can heal. If a person wonders why things don't seem quite at ease in their heart, they have to think first of all of their relationship with Almighty God. We're made to love God. It's the basic law of our nature. That's what our heart's for. And only when we realize this and really turn toward God and try to love Him, then our heart feels comfortable, because this is what our heart's made for. What is the first commandment? The first commandment is, I am the Lord thy God, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. Thou shalt not make to thyself any graven thing, nor the likeness of anything that's in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, nor of those things that are in the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not adore them, nor serve them. What are we commanded to do by the first commandment? By the first commandment we're commanded to worship the one true and living God by faith, hope, charity and religion. What are the sins against faith? The sins against faith are all false religions, willful doubt, disbelief, or denial of any article of the faith, and also culpable ignorance of the doctrines of the Church. Well, mind you, of course, to be in a false religion, if you haven't, uh, if you don't realize it's wrong, there's no sin there. I suppose objective, if you like, but there's no subjective sin whatever in a person being a good Hindu or Muslim, obviously. Willful doubt. I'm not quite sure how you can willfully doubt. Disbelief or denial of any article of the faith. I suppose it means that if you've got any difficulties about the faith, what we should do is to uh, try to solve them in, a, in, in the right way. 
I mean, it can be, and it happens, that people get all sorts of real doubts about the faith. What do they do? They go and write a book about it. Now, if we get doubts about the faith or difficulties, what we should do is to pray and use the sacraments and find some good, helpful person who may be able to help us a bit. If there's some priest near you who really seems a good man of prayer, then to go and ask him. Just like if you get ill, you wouldn't look through uh, advertisements in the papers for sort of all sorts of cures for different things. No, you go to a doctor you trusted and say, Doctor, look, I've got this going wrong with me. Is it serious? What is it? And so with matters regarding the faith, you, you need to go and ask somebody. And well, it's a great, there's such humility in asking people's advice that God gives graces just through that. Culpable ignorance, that means blameworthy ignorance of the doctrines of the church. Well, that of course is how many people, many Catholics here in Europe lose the faith. A man might be sort of up to PhD standard, but as with religion, he hasn't got past O-levels. He hasn't got past what he's doing at the age of 14. Well, if he's studying all these other things, surely he should have been using his mind also to study about God and about his faith. And so it can be that people can lose the faith not from attacks from outside, but from attacks from within. I mean, it's not other people's criticisms of the faith that they can't answer, but in their ordinary secular studies, they're being trained to criticize, trained to find faults with things. And their faith becomes a victim of their own critical judgment. They can't answer the questions they put to themselves. And why? Because, I suppose, perhaps culpable ignorance. They haven't been studying the faith as really one should. If you have something very precious, you do look after it. I mean, a woman doesn't leave her baby lying on the edge of a table. And so this faith, which we should value immensely, we need to protect it and to foster it and try to strengthen it. I mean, the criterion I use when deciding whether or not to read a book or listen to something, say, on the radio or television, I'd say, will this strengthen my faith? And if it won't, I ask myself, why am I reading it? Idle curiosity. Curiosity can be lethal. We aren't meant to know everything. We're not meant to explore everything but we are meant to use our minds to help us get to heaven. And if a person thinks, well, why shouldn't I read this? There's danger there. We might as well end there. God bless you.